Hi, and welcome to Aspect Ratio Projects 1 to 1. My name is Jennifer Armetta, and I'm the director of the gallery. Aspect Ratio Projects is a contemporary art gallery located in Chicago. We represent emerging and mid-career conceptual artists from around the world. This is our series of podcasts that we look at as sort of an informal fireside chat with our artists. Time to get personal, have some fun, and learn about art and our artists. I'm happy to be speaking with Cameron Gaynor today, who is in our current show. Thank you to Darby Jack Gustafson, our associate intern, for producing the event today. Hello, Cameron. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for asking. Yeah, of course. I'm super excited to be chatting with you. As we both know, we have, are never at a loss for words here. So <laughs> what I think where I'd like to begin is, um, you know, you have a long and interesting career. You've done many things and your work is obviously conceptual. You work in multiple different mediums, but it's all very, it seems to me at least very project-based and you take on these big oftentimes scientific research projects. So why don't you tell us how you kind of started going down that path? Great question. And thanks. I I think of myself as a research-based artist. And I think that's something that has, it's a, it's a phrase or a term that like was kind of new to me maybe 10 years ago where I couldn't really describe what I was doing in a way that felt accurate. And I was oftentimes taking, you know, up to three to four years developing content and researching with um, scientists or investigating different technologies to use to express what I was sort of after or the idea. And I would say everything starts with, it starts conceptually. And then I move into the actual sort of technical elements of how to achieve what I'm after. And, you know, I think looking at some recent work, it's, it's a little easier to sort of give examples to say that, for instance, um, shooting a, a bioluminescent organism in a bay in Puerto Rico that had never been captured required mm. finding a like the, the most light sensitive camera in the world, uh, for instance. And, and a guy who actually developed that camera came from Tokyo to shoot with me. And that took a number of years and actually finding the, um, the, the synchronized swimmer who swam in that um, video also mm-hmm. took a number of years. She was kind of off the radar a little bit. But what's interesting to me about the practice is that I generally, I work to develop an idea of what this will look like and then realize what I'm seeing in my head. And more often than not, it's extraordinarily accurate in terms of like what I'm actually able to achieve. And that's something that I guess is in terms of understanding the way I work as an artist. Some artists do a lot of drawings and work through a sort of physical practice. And mine is much more, it's more in my head. And so I'm generally developing three or four projects over years upstairs. Um, (laughs) so uh, half the studio practice is actually me just making things in my mind and then, and then actually finding the tools to realize that. So that just surprised me. I thought you were going to say, I think of things in my mind and then I start to research it and things start, you know, begin to come to fruition and it winds up different than how I had thought, but how unusual that it's actually really exactly almost what you had come up with conceptually from the beginning. Cause I know, like you said, lots of artists, they go through these iterations of, you know, they have an idea or a concept and then, you know, it morphs into something different, maybe either for practical reasons or because something else becomes more interesting to them, but you seem very laser focused. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, no, it's true in, in a way, but also, you know, I'd say that the, the, the initial seed 
for each work comes from a sort of like a, a broader interest in sort of the world at large. So I, I'm aware of these organisms or events or things that are going on that that kind of drive me to find interest. And then also I'd say like relationships to contemporary thought and where things may look like they're just about the forest or an image of a, a landscape, but it's really, you know, homage to something that I've read philosophically or, you know, a, a, an idea of more contemporary thought, I guess is the way to say it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not just a pretty picture. Um, it's not just right. a film that depicts the, the glowing organism at night, but rather has these more poetic and conceptual undertones. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an evolving process. You know, I've been fortunate to have and work with colleagues who are really informed in a, num- in a number of other ways. And um, I would say also uh, a musician that I've worked with um, on a number of projects, Alex Waterman, mm-hmm. who um, has done the soundtrack to two of the films that I've done. Also just being around people who have extraordinary uh, gifts and talent. So this is a question I do have, though. Do you have a background in science at all? I mean, I, I'm kind of considering myself a science nerd because I love it and can talk about it all day long, which is funny. I'm in art and here I am talking to you and your art is a lot about science or exploring or research, obviously, but you built a meteor. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Recast a meteorite. No, right. a meteorite, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, I'm getting, this is a funny story. So the only class I've ever failed in my life was actually a chemistry class. Um, I, and I, it was for me as a young person, the way science was taught was so linear and it was about memorization, um, mm-hmm. memorizing the table of elements, something like this. And this is what you were graded on. I did never experienced the the lived world in a way to me that was sort of like broken into pieces that way and and I grew up in a log cabin without running water in the mountains and and a lot of my observations I I think the sort of scientific strategies that I use come from uh, growing up outside around other living organisms and just observation and then just curiosity deep curiosity curiosity. yeah totally like fascinating curiosity and i actually just can't get enough information Mm -hmm. and i you know i used to subscribe to i think something like 25 different scientific journals and so i would just sort of pour through things reading abstracts and you know reading about research that people are just on the cutting edge of and you know haven't actually quite realized their proofs or so i was just often exposed to sort of really cutting edge thinking along right. uh, the lines of science did you start off that way like what were what was one of your first projects or when was when did you sit down and go hmm i'm going to be an artist or did this happen yeah. more organically as well and like what were That's your first experiments great, growing up in colorado the idea of being a professional artist was not a reality. We didn't, right. we, I didn't have a lot of people around me who showed me that that was like an actual a job. And and also, uh, even though I, my my mother had an art gallery when I was growing up, um, so I was clearly around those things, but it just didn't seem like that was something that that was achievable. So, uh, the breakthroughs that I had as a young as a younger person, I think, came really from being introduced to experimental film uh, by Stan Brackage at CU. I I did my undergraduate um, at CU and uh, I studied with Stan there and he showed a film called Mothlight, which is a film in which he took pieces of um, uh, like leaves and detritus from out in the forest and then the 
the actual wings of moths and sandwiched them between two pieces of film and then ran that through an optical printer and created this film moth light to me that was it, there was a sort of like before and after moment i saw that film and it was kind of everything that i had ever thought about condensed into one you know short experimental film it just it changed my life. And, and through that experience, you know, Stan introduced me to other uh, filmmakers and you know, I'm seeing Len Lai for the first time. And, and that was really, I think that was a formative moment where I realized I, the way that I was thinking was more already cinematic in a way. And the way I was approaching making was probably more like a filmmaker, even though the, the, I was making objects and, and shooting photographs. So when you're, when you're conceiving of a project do you see it in in multiple media like do you see like okay i I know the video will fit here and then the photographic element if there is one will fit here or a sculpture do you envision that whole thing or does that just kind of roll out i think what i do is i think it rolls around upstairs until all all the pieces sort of sit together I, i mean it's maybe it's easier to talk about specific pieces because they are very different the meteorite project is a very specific one where it is it is literally just a recast meteorite so um i when i looked at that there was no question that this thing exists in one form one medium it is just sculpture luna with luna the the video that was shot down in puerto rico with the bioluminescent bay and and the project that we have up right now nil which is naturally illuminated landscape you know those I knew from the beginning that they would take two forms, which would be both moving image and still image. Mm -hmm. And I think what's important to understand about those projects is that the images are not stills from the video, right? They were, they were shot in parallel. And, and I always knew that that's how it was going to form. But what, one of the reasons I have, I'm kind of like thinking as I'm talking through the question you're asking is because I'm working on a project right now, which I think for the first time is doing a little bit more, it's behaving more like you're, you're asking with you know yeah. the, the this this sort of process that you're presenting which is like it is it is forming and changing it's it's i know the film i can see the film in my head it's already completed i just need to shoot it but there are other visual elements that are changing and okay. they are these sort of like i think what's interesting about it to me and what's complicated is they're sort of like sculptural photographs hmm. and i'm thinking about photography in a way that i haven't thought before so this is maybe one of the first times that a newer project is like I'm working through my practice in a different way. And it's probably like uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> it's not resolved yet. <laughs> and I'm still trying to understand it. Whereas historically, like I, I kind of work into a fixed position and then I make the work. This one is, this, this is actually happening a little differently. Well, I love that you just described it as uncomfortable because when I speak with artists, not not you, but um, other artists that I've talked to, you know, you can fall into a rhythm or a groove where you keep producing things that are similar, but then, you know, it's time to evolve. And that's the exact word I say, it's time to evolve and get uncomfortable. What is going to make you feel that way? What is going to help you experiment or push a boundary that maybe you haven't thought of doing or you're a little fearful of doing for whatever reason? But um, I like that you're getting out of that comfort, not that you're in a comfort zone, but I like that you're feeling uncomfortable is the best way to say it. We'll see. Yeah. You, you know, you bring up something too, I think that's really important. And, and, and also to, to my practice, just the idea of failure and, mm. and I'll say the strength of failure. Right. And even though I, I know that I, I can see in my head how something is going to come out. 
almost every project I've ever done, I've been told at one point or another is impossible to do for numerous reasons, whether it had never been photographed before because it's low light, if, you know, the absurdity of it, uh, there, you know, there's a, a number of pieces when I was living in New York that I, I took on that were public artworks that to me, you know, just taking on figurative public work was like taking everything that at that moment I had rejected up to that point as an artist and saying, <laughs> can I take the things that I hate and actually make something that is successful and feels good. And it really was an attempt to sort of like, you know, to, to stare failure in the face and be like, what does this look like? And, and the interesting thing about that to me is that every time I've leaned into that feeling, mm -hmm. the project has worked in one way or another, or I've learned something from its various success that I am able to, you know, adapt into the next phase. So, I, you know, that's something I don't get to talk a lot about because right. um, in the end, the projects work, you know, I'm meeting with these, you know, rangers in the forest in Elkmont, Tennessee, who are telling me, you know, it's impossible to capture the light of this firefly. And then six months later, you know, I'm sending them images saying well, it, it, it worked, you know, like all the, all the research finding this particular lens that, you know, uh, had a wide enough aperture that could capture the light for all these reasons. And, and that, that, I think that moment happens consistently in the projects that I feel the most are the most successful is this kind of like it was on the edge of not being able to happen through a number of chance encounters it, it works and so really leaning into that idea of failure to me is something that's just um it's actually really as much a part of the process as anything else <laughs> it's, right. uh, it's just, just it's acknowledging failure um yep it feels like something's being revealed that didn't exist before. And I know that is sort of the magic of, you know, being an artist and, and being somebody who creates. And I think that's precisely what most artists are sort of driven by is that, that experience of, of being able to make something in the world that did not exist before. And it's a moment of discovery with mm -hmm. the, like of your own creation. Right. <laughs> and, and that's the thing that is interesting to me. It's like, I'm, I kind of surprise myself. Um, <laughs> and I'm always like the first, you know, I'm my, I'm my own viewer, right? I'm the first, I'm the original viewer of whatever I make, yep. but I actually experience that not as the person who made it, but as the person who's like finding it or just, it's a very, it's a, um, it's a funny sort of like snake eating its own tail. <laughs> situation well right because well, right, not every artist does both those things i mean you create and you reveal so those things are very intricately intertwined in you know your practice and obviously the the projects that we've discussed thus far i mean and that's that's not necessarily typical of an artist i mean some do they reveal history or they reveal but you are revealing things that are around us maybe not in everyday life, but are around us that we haven't either been exposed to, taken the time to notice, much like the show that you're in. And so maybe we should talk a little bit about how that came to be with the project mm -hmm. that is in this current show, because not everyone's going to sit there and think, gee, I think I'll find a firefly mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. expose yeah. that. And right. yet you did it. And I think you did it I don't know, I don't put words in your mouth, but if I recall from past conversations, you did it rather quickly in terms of once yeah. you got down there and started shooting. So how did you come to conceive of this idea? What was yeah. the feeling about yeah. it? What were you gotcha. really, what was it like? You were trying to expose the beauty? Were you up yeah. for the challenge of doing something no one else had done? It's sort of a myriad, it's, it's like, it's an approach 
from a myriad of, of positions. Like, so I'm, I'm coming at it on one way, purely um, from a sort of formal sense, which is really thinking about light and manifestations of light and a history of photography and a sort of like what, in, you know, generally as a photographer, we are using light, artificial light, and we're capturing sort of light being reflected or refracted off of a subject. And I, I was really interested in this sort of what I also kind of call like a series with both with Luna and, and Nil in, in turning that around and actually making light itself um, the subject. So, so that is to say like the light created by these organisms is the subject, but also thinking about uh, landscape photography and, you know, is there a way for me to sort of like add into a conversation that has existed for a lot longer than I have that is contributing to sort of like a discovery or a presentation of our relationship to landscape. And in, in this context, it was, can I can I document a landscape? So this would be really in the in the photographs more than the video. Document a landscape where the landscape itself is the silhouette, and and the light that creates that landscape is 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 a living organism, um, and you're seeing you're seeing the landscape in sort of shadow almost. So it's in a number of the photographs you you don't actually you can't see that the the surface of the trees or the surface of the of the ground but you can perceive the shape and the form because those things exist where the where the light of the fireflies does not if that makes mm -hmm. I know that's kind of a convoluted way of saying it but no. I was also really interested in the way that these fireflies they give form to the landscape but they're also if you look physically at the photograph there's actually no information there because of the way that the, the photograph is exposed, it's uh, there, there's nothing but light. It's essentially like, you know, I used to love seeing this sort of like burn holes in old 35 millimeter films um, when you're watching movies and movies there where they were kind of like marking, you know, marking where uh, the, the reels needed to switch or something. And, and so there'd be like a burn hole through the frame and there'd be like a, huh. like nothing there. Right. So in a way, right. when you're looking at these photographs, there's actually no information in the very thing that is creating the information you're seeing. Does that make, does that kind of make sense? It's sort of like a, oh, a foreground background scenario. And so I was also thinking a lot about, you know, going back to sort of like Len Lai and, and, and Stan Brakhage and thinking about those, those films that were so formative at a very particular moment for me and mm -hmm. thinking how, you know, I don't want to just remake something that they've, that they, that's already exists. I want to, I want to be able to think through some of those same gestures, but apply the I guess what I would say is my kind of my perception coming from a sort of coming from a, a more well my collaborators in this case are insects right. <laughs> so <laughs> instead of instead of taking the wings off of moths and putting them between two pieces of um, film I'm actually like working with them I mean it's it's yeah. a it's a sort of like a chore partnership. choreography partnership <laughs> in, in a way it's um so I, I think those were things that I was sort of thinking through when I started to develop, you know, the ideas and, and sort of understanding what I was after, what I thought it would look like. The other thing that I think is really interesting about that project, and I know this is tough because it's a podcast and I'm talking about artworks and we're not actually looking at them, but within the series, the very first photograph that I shot is in the series. 
and the very last one is, and they bookend, they bookend the, the photographs. What's interesting to me about that is it's so rare to go out and shoot a subject and have the very first photograph that you shot right, and the very last one bookend. I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm shooting thousands of photographs yeah, um, in amazing. some cases, like tens of thousands of photographs to get, to get these things. But in, in this case, everything was bookended. And to me, hmm. that is, I mean, that's extraordinarily cinematic. There's, there was a very specific beginning and a, a very specific end. So again, I think it was, uh, and you asked about sort of like timing and how and where I, it was a two day shoot. I had all my research sort of pulled together and I, I found this lens that ironically was actually, I had to, I rented this. It's a, it's a super rare lens. And it was, it was actually in Tennessee was where I rented it, but they had to send wow. it to me in Minnesota where I was living. Oh. So I ordered it. They sent it me to Minnesota. I flew down to Tennessee. Uh, I shot for two days. Then I flew back to Minnesota and sent it back to them. So there was this very wow. funny handoff with this uh, very specific lens where, again, it was an, it's an F1. It's a, uh, it's a Canon F1. And it's... Um, it's just, it's it got a super wide aperture and it's very fast and it, it has a very sort of like short depth of field, but mm -hmm. it really is the most light sensitive still camera lens that exists. And so I was able to find that uh, through the research that I was doing and go down there with it and, and spend a couple days. And that, it, I mean, really a two day shoot in an environment like that is pretty short, but this is a really unique Very. organism. And it only lives in one place in the world, which is Elkmont, Tennessee. And it's a synchronous firefly called Photinus carolinus. And they come out for about 21 days every mm. year. It's, that is their entire life cycle. Wow. Um, what we're watching and what I'm documenting is also a very sensuous sort of death dance because it's the 21 mm -hmm. days that they essentially have to reproduce. And, and I think there's something about that fact that kind of is captured within the film. There's a sort of mm -hmm. like beautiful darkness to it, um, a seductive sort of like uh, finality or something that I think is inherent in, in what the subject actually is. I was really fascinated by a piece of writing that uh, Piero Pasolini wrote called it was, this is 1975-ish, called Where 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 Have All the Fireflies Gone? And he's mm -hmm. linking the disappearance of fireflies in Italy to the rise of fascism. And I think that, you know, nature really acts as a barometer to the health of our society. So mm -hmm. when nature's doing well, you know, society tends to thrive. And when we go through, you know, phases and, and cycles where, uh, you know, our environment is destroyed, regulations are removed, we also see humans treating humans as badly as they're treating their surroundings. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that was a real, you know, driving force into the sort of the original seed of why, why this right now, you know? And, right. and so that was as important as some of the more formal mm -hmm. issues um, and, and technical things that I was thinking about. Now I have a question. Had, did you plan for only two days or, you know, people told you this was going to be incredibly difficult, but you did it in two days. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I guess I did. I mean, you know, all these things are, um, shoots are really expensive. You know, even with the, the piece that I shot in Puerto Rico, we also had um, just two nights filming. That's part of the sort of like, 
Wow. The charge of the potential of failure. It's like, if you don't get it, it's, you know, it's not going to work. So I basically have one night to kind of spend out outside and understand, you know, where the best situations are, like where, where the, where this particular species is the, is the most, most robust, I guess they, they really like, um, slowly running groundwater. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I hunted through the forest for very small sort of like creeks and, uh, and then sort of marked them down on a map and came that first night to sort of test my hypothesis and they were there, um, and then test the equipment and basically see like, okay, what, how long do I need to open this exposure up for? And, and, and you had asked kind of how, how are they shot that way? They are. So the, the last photograph in the series, which almost looks like you're looking into a deep space or um mm-hmm. you know the the universe or something that was about eight seconds oh. so it's an eight second exposure and you can see in that image the sort of you're actually looking at the light like several of the flashings of a single organ of, of each firefly that you're looking at and you can kind of track them right for that eight seconds well i guess a couple things i love how in that series it goes it starts off I don't want to say totally literal, but you can see the forest. You have the one firefly and then it moves into this, I guess, mode of sort of abstraction. And through that process, even as you kind of compare the photographs with the video to touch on what you said also is like this kind of seduction of drawing you in. And this, maybe you can explain to how, how these fireflies work. There's like, uh, you know, kind of a a real rhythmic um, element to how they fire off their light for lack mm-hmm. of a better way of putting mm-hmm. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you've partnered with Alex Waterman again. And you know, the sound that goes with that is percussion oriented, right? It's very mm. rhythmic. Um mm. and it's quite mesmerizing. It's very different in my opinion anyways than with Luna. Um, but it, it's very fitting. And so and the light happens to when the light goes off in the video, the sound is almost Perfect. First off, uh, the light of the firefly. Um, so just on the, on the basic science level, it's what these organisms, many of the organisms that create bioluminescence mix two proteins, luciferin and luciferase. And when those two proteins mix, they, they create light. And that's how, that's literally how they're firing off. <laughs> What's unique about this species is that it's a synchronous firefly. It's the only synchronous firefly. I mean, this is the only place this species lives in the world, but it's the only synchronous firefly in the United States. There are a few other synchronous fireflies, mostly in Southeast Asia, and they're not super prevalent. And and what's unique about them is that if we're sitting out in a backyard someplace and you see fireflies, they tend to pop off kind of like, like randomly. You know, right. almost like like jazz drumming a little bit. It's like it's got a really yeah. beautiful erratic kind of like these guys are different. What they are is it's more like going to a a football game or soccer game where the crowd starts to do the wave, and you stand up when the person next to you stands up, right? And so, and then from that, you have these essential, essentially like human pulses moving through the crowd well that's what that's what this organism does is it essentially pulses through the forest and what when when one of the other you know its neighbor sparks up they they light and that's what's Mm -hmm. super unique about that and why it's so different from other uh species they still you know one of the things that i found in all the research i've done in and around bioluminescence is most scientists there's still no 
true understanding of why these organisms do this. You know, they right. assume it has something to do with either sex and or avoiding predators. <laughs> and, right. and in the case of a, a firefly like this, they, they're, they're still not sure whether they just don't know the purpose. And that to me is super fascinating because mm-hmm. essentially, you know, one, we may, may just not know Two, it may just be some sort of like um, evolutionary tick, you know, that just kind of exists in a way that's not doing anything for this species. And and the other, I mean, I I really do think the idea that we're still learning about these things and and the fact that even scientists who have been studying it all their lives just means that there's a level of, um, I like, I don't want to use the word magic, but that, that there are still things in this over, in this over mediated world that are like, we're uncertain about. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. Do you know what makes the first one light up? How long it lasts for? And then how does it end? Like, does someone just, one of the, someone, one of the fireflies just say, <laughs> we're done now and we're it's done. over? Like, Everybody claps. Everybody right? claps. This is amazing. The wave is over. <laughs> yeah, that's, those are great questions. So uh, what's unique about this area in, in Tennessee, in Elkmont, is that it actually has some elevation. And um, what's unique about these guys is that they tend to nestle and nest up higher and then as the light comes down in the evening they slowly migrate to a lower elevation and when the light and they hit that elevation that's when they turn on and and it is it is really interesting because it doesn't happen like a light switch but the that very first photograph i took where where you've just got the single firefly kind of right in the middle of the frame mm-hmm. how, how i mean <laughs> the, the fact that that is set up that way because i saw him coming down from i saw him coming down from up up the hill and i set my tripod up and he's like 500 feet away and i, I saw him light once or twice and i stood there i set up where i thought he might come down the fact with this lens which has such a, a you know a narrow field of focus the fact that i was able to catch him but also just like right in the middle of the frame is is really extraordinary and right and so what happens is you get one or two that kind of come down and then it's sort of like a ground swell and and at, at, at a particular moment and you see this in the video a little more clearly it builds to a sort of like crescendo mm-hmm. and then the very same way that it started which is just sort of like one by one, they kind of just stop and decide to go back up into the mountains. So it's, it's really, it's fascinating. And you kind of feel that in the video again, where, you know, the, the video ends as they sort of start to slow down. So they build to this crescendo and then they just kind of like tapers off in a way. And going back to Alex and, and, and what he what he's able to do with with the cello so all the sounds that you hear are cello in that um in that video in the soundtrack but we also work in a way which i think and this speaks a little bit to the sort of (laughs) the synchronicity of like of a moment where where things just come together in an almost unexplainable way so i don't show alex the entire films Hmm. And he doesn't, he's not scoring them live while he's watching them. So he, I send him snippets and clips and descriptions, some images, and I, he gets the sense of it, but he's not orchestrating to the film itself, which is 
extraordinary because if you watch both of those films and you and you listen to them i, I mean it's they're so in parallel they're so in sync it's like it's, it feels like it feels like magic again mm-hmm. and i mean like there's something there's some sort of like organize, organizational strategy going on that you know you're you're not aware of and and i think it's really helpful to understand that that they're that he was not sitting in the room watching it while he's playing um that there is just a trust that wow that what he's interpreting and feeling is like makes sense with what what we have going on so. i love that i did not know that i mean i didn't i didn't think he was approaching it like he was scoring something but i did think that there was more coordination that it is kind of, it is we shouldn't be afraid to say it is magical right <laughs> we're both trying to I, like kowtow around i know oh, we say i that? know i know but words it, like magic and wonder like right they, they drive me crazy but i'm like the more i look at some of the things that i do and the way that i i engage them as my own viewer too i'm like it's hard not to feel like there's something just really special happening and mm-hmm. you know I, the natural you know question you know would be to ask about like you know, I now live in the desert, which is a very different place than Tennessee or Minnesota, where I lived before, and which is actually filled with more, I guess, life than I could have ever expected. I was mm-hmm. sort of expected it to be a little more severe here. And um, oh. I'm finding that that's not the case. And and the reason I bring this up is because I had this experience the other day walking down the street where uh, I, this sound that I had never heard before uh, sort of like zipped by my head about six inches away. And it was this high pitched sound and it terrified me. I had no, I had no idea what it was. Did you jump? I couldn't couldn't see it. I think my jaw just dropped. And that's generally like also a really good barometer for like, you know, whether someone's seeing something they haven't seen before, or like, it's like, it really is that like mouth, a gig to like, kind of like, uh, what is happening? Um, And I had that look while I was like going through my head, trying to figure it out. Like, is this a drone? Is this like an invisible drone? And someone's got some like high tech, you know, spyware, you know? So I like, I really could not figure it out. And I'm, you know, I'm walking through the desert thinking about, about drones like how is that even like how am i going there come to find out digging deeper into it it's there's a very tiny hummingbird called a costas hummingbird which is native to um the sonoran desert and it will actually from time to time it will choose a human as the subject of its mating display and really? what I was, what oh, I was in that Cameron. moment was the subject <laughs> of this very small hummingbird's mating display. And it was like, it was totally, it was, it was magical. I will say it was really something incredible because I was so out of my, my zone of awareness or it, I could not figure out what this thing was. And then, then learning about it, doing more research, obviously, and and then going back out and trying to find, you know, other others in the same species, which uh, over the next month or so I, I was able to do. There's something in that moment which is aligned in what I always hope contemporary art can do, which is that it it creates new neural pathways. It you experience something in a way, you're seeing something that you could have imagined before and by the very experience of it it's changing who and how you are in the world as a person and i think if there is an organizing strategy to the way that i want to exist as an artist in the world like that is it and that i get to still experience that in the natural world with organisms that that live in my backyard here that is also just a really special thing to me 
That's beautiful. Honestly, it's, I mean, so well said. That really resonates with me. I'm sure it's resonating with other people. I'm wondering if we just got a sneak preview of things to come. <laughs> you, you, I, you know, maybe this is, I, I can tell you, this made me, it scared the hell out of me. It really did. And so there is something really beautiful about that. Like I was myself, you think, you know, uh, yes, possibly, but I will say that I couldn't see this thing. It was yeah. so, it's so tiny that I couldn't see it. So That's I don't, I don't know if it's actually captured. I don't know that I could like, you know, capture an image of it. It's right. It is. So no, that's a really, um, <laughs> it is all possible that, uh, that, that is, there's no doubt that it is a part of my thinking. Right. I just, I just don't, I have actually can't see it yet for the first time. Wow, so that, yeah. I don't know how it's going to exist as a thing. So um, a whole new camera is involved in this one. Yeah, or maybe <laughs> I'm just going to have to make drawings. I don't know. I, right? This is uh, this little guy might be too fast. So uh, it's extraordinary. Well, don't they say? And I could be getting this wrong. So you're feel free to correct me. But there's something out there that says when you feel fear, that's when you're most alive. And obviously there's like a reaction to things, the fight or flight thing, but um kind of think that's interesting that this tiny yeah. thing instilled that yeah. in you at that moment. <laughs> yes. yes, this this sort of like microscopic bird's sexual display <laughs> it was like it froze me in my tracks. Yeah, no, it really and made me it made me contemplate my death. And I <laughs> I say that laughing now because but in the moment I was like. I really thought something like, I thought this thing was going to like, you know, fly into my eye or, you know, into my neck or something. It was really, it was really an extraordinary moment. And um, I'm very happy that I was able to have that. They, you know, I, what the French word for an orgasm is the petite, uh, the petite more. death, the, the, the yes. petite more. Mm -hmm. So there was a little, there was a little death in the desert. Um, with, fear and power. With this hummingbird. Yeah. yeah, fear and power with a tiny hummingbird. <laughs> it was uh, pretty oh. extraordinary. I'm, I'm blushing on the on the podcast. If you can't <laughs> hear that through the um, through the microphone, it's very funny. Oh, but yeah, oh. it's I, I am super impacted by where I where I live and what I'm around, and I think being here is certainly. Um, changing the way that I sort of, you know, I think it's also thinking about landscape. I had that the Smithsonian Research Fellowship where I was studying the morphology and nomenclature of impact craters on, on Mercury. And, and what, what, why I was so interested in that is that really, it, if you understand the way we think and claim landscape, name these things, and it really directs like how we think and how we interact with the rest of the world and people in that world mm -hmm. and and i think there's really something that when i was a young person like pushed against representational like landscape paintings photography i was just like this is the most boring thing i could think of like why would anybody <laughs> want to do that and now i i realized the, the potential right. of it to look like one thing but to really come from the spirit of another space and um i think that's uh i, I feel also really fortunate to be exploring that yeah know? Well, we will certainly look forward to your next project. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Oh, um, it's thank been you. a true pleasure. Yes. No, it's always interesting. I actually learned so much. 
<laughs> from oh, you. Thanks. Yeah. Well, great. likewise, mutual, mutual oh, benefiting. I really appreciate you. it. Yeah. Well, thank you. And um, please be sure to rate our podcast and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Um, if you want to know more about Cameron and Aspect Ratio Projects, please visit our website and subscribe to our newsletter to receive up-to-date information on our artist shows and projects. And if you live in Chicago or you feel like getting on a plane, come see the show. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. Bye, Cameron. Bye. Thanks, Jen.